Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show, to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, we're going to talk about stories. Now, no doubt you have heard that to capture your audience and your audience's attention, you need to tell a story. Yet, if you're like most of the executives I talk to, you don't use narrative particularly well. You know you probably need to, but you don't know how, and you don't see very many people model it particularly well. Most of us, in addition, are not trained on how to use the power of stories, let alone how to master them. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about why. First off, why are stories so powerful? What is it that's happening that makes such a difference? And then I want to walk you through how to think about the stories that are going to make a difference for your organizations. And that's our focus. My guest today is the author of a fabulous book called The Sea We Swim In, How Stories Work in a Data-Driven World. And his previous book, The Art of Immersion, How the Digital Generation is Remaking Hollywood, Madison Avenue, and the Way We Tell Stories. That one was about how technology is changing the age-old art of storytelling. You'll hear a few snippets from that one today. But Frank is currently a senior fellow at Columbia University School of Arts, and he teaches a course called Strategic Storytelling in conjunction with the business school, and it's a seminar for Columbia business executives. Frank also speaks a lot regularly on narrative thinking and the power of immersive storytelling. He's given keynote addresses in all sorts of places, lectured at a variety of universities like the University of Southern California, New York University, in addition to Columbia. He's given global summits for companies like Timberland and Unilever. He's joined R&D symposiums for companies like the Museum of Modern Art here in New York and the BBC in the UK. He's taken part in speaker series at Google and Lucasfilms. He's led workshops at a host of companies and places like the United Nations. And if that isn't enough, he currently contributes to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, among others. So clearly somebody who has studied and mastered the art of storytelling. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. Uh, And thank you for a terrific introduction. Thank you. I'm delighted to talk about this one. And for people who don't know a bit about my background, this is a longstanding passion for me, um, both a research topic and a passion topic about stories, about the way we use stories. And I'm going to start this with a personal story, Frank, rather than then I'll go to my first question, which is when I was at the business school as a marketing faculty member and I was teaching MBA students basic marketing classes. And I would come back to the alumni events, you know, three and four years later, students would say to me, you know, one of the thing I remember about your class, and I'm all ears because, yes, finally, you're going to tell me the brilliant wisdom you learned from me. And instead, they would say, I remember that story you told about. I find in my speaking engagements, people come up to me years later and say, you know, I remember you. I remember that story you told about. Now, I've done enough research on memory to know that sometimes their memory and my memories don't align, which is interesting. (laughs) 
But I learned long ago that if you wanted people to remember a concept or a thought, you give a story. And if the story embeds the concept, they're going to hold it. So this is a topic I care a great deal about. Now, that's why I care about it. Frank, why do you care? What's the question that you're trying to address? Uh, Sure. Um, Well, one reason I care is because I spent almost my entire career telling stories, uh, that is, writing stories. As a journalist, I uh, I started out... Uh, at the Village Voice in New York in the uh, in the 1970s, chronicling uh, you know the the rise of punk music, the Ramones, and so forth at CBGB. Uh, I then went on to Rolling Stone and Esquire, and uh, uh, ultimately to Fortune, and then to Wired. And at Wired, uh, a couple of things happened, but uh, you know the the first and maybe most important was. I was sort of uh, given this beat of, so to speak, of writing about the intersection of media and technology, what was happening there. And then something uh, like around 2006, actually, something happened that really changed the way I viewed uh, all of this, changed the way I viewed stories and everything around them. And that was, I went to Montreal to do uh, an article on um, uh, 3D. And this was, uh, as I say, 2006, it was well before the first um, 3D feature film had been uh, released. Uh, It was well before uh, James Cameron came out with Avatar. But Cameron was there in Montreal because he was uh, on uh, on a sound stage uh, where they were shooting the first feature film that excuse me, the first feature film to use the 3D stereoscopic camera system that he had invented with Vince Pace. And uh, so that was great. Uh, I wanted to talk to him all about 3D. Uh, He gave me a complete earful, just like the wonkiest stuff you can imagine about how how to shoot in 3D. Um, Much of it, I have to admit, was over my head. But he told me one thing that was really, uh, you know, ultimately I found quite exciting, which is I asked him about Avatar, which at that point had been in development for years. Uh, It was widely expected that it would be his next film, but uh, it had not yet been greenlit by Fox, his studio. And uh, so I asked him about it and he said, well, you know, he didn't really want to talk very much about it. But he he did say that, uh, you know, he saw it as sort of like an action adventure film, uh, an Edgar Rice Burroughs type action adventure film, the author of Tarzan, of course. Uh, that happened to take place on another planet. And uh, then he went on to say, and this is what really changed my life, he went on to say that for him, the best way to tell such a story is to create almost like a fractal experience where, you know, if you're a casual fan, you could just watch the movie and that's fine. You'd be satisfied. But if you're a more committed fan, you would want to go deeper and deeper into the story and you had to be able to go uh, deeper into the story and the pattern would still hold. And that was what he meant by, by, by fractals. And uh, so this was a revelation to me. It took a while for it to really sink in, but what I ultimately realized, and this is what led me to write The Art of Immersion, what I ultimately realized was that uh, this was a whole different way of telling stories that was uh, made possible 
by digital technology, but was something that we had always wanted to do, that people had always wanted to do. Right. You write um, in the Sea We Swim In about a little bit about the story, but you also write about immersion experiences and how much the current world, and I won't say generation because I think it's the current world, is interested in experience. All right. And granted, we had the book, you know, several decades ago on the experience economy, which was a bit ahead of its time. I think we're there now. I think everybody wants experiences. I see it in my business for sure. And you also write about this um, uh, event where you go to a theater and the story is not on stage. It's happening in a building in multiple rooms, simultaneously a building. And as a viewer, you roam room to room to room and you never quite know, is there a proper sequence or not a proper sequence it just unfolds in front of you. Now, I've done one of those experiences. I have to tell you, it's captivating because it feels like you're witnessing in real life something and discovering something. And it's a very different theater experience. But that's what you you write about that as well, these immersions and right. how technology is also making that kind of immersion possible. Right. Um and the uh, the the thing about this um, this production, you know, one of one of many productions of uh, you know sort of immersive um, theater experiences, but this was one of the first, probably the first, uh, you know, really important yeah. one yeah. in the U.S. Um, it was um, it was originally created in the U.K. and uh, the uh, person who created it. Uh, is the the founder of a company called Punch Drunk, a theater company called Punch Drunk. And um, his feeling is that you go to a conventional theater and it, basically you're all set up to go to sleep. Uh, you know, you go, you take your seat, uh, the um, curtain rises, you see all the action through a proscenium arch and, uh, and you know exactly what's expected. Uh, so um, what, what he wanted to do, and he started this, um, started experimenting with this, and when he was in theater school at the University of Exeter uh, in uh, in England uh, in the 1990s, and what he wanted to do was just get it, you know, take all that stuff away and thrust you into the middle of the experience, and that was, you know, a form of immersion, and that's, that's what right. we mean that's by right. immersive uh, right. immersive theater. And it's, uh, yeah, it's been quite, quite a remarkable development. I, and at the same time, there, you know, you see artists like Yayoi Kusama, who is, uh, you know, I believe she's in her 80s, a Japanese artist, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. who has become very popular in the U.S. in recent years. And one thing that she does is um, she creates these uh, 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 sort of um, experiences. You walk into a room. It's called an infinity room. It's a mirrored room uh, with the lights out, except there are a million tiny little light bulbs twinkling. And you get there for 45 seconds. That's how long you were allowed. And, uh, And this was like, you know, an experience that people would line up for hours, hours to have. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, it was the the thing that's important to remember here is it's art without a frame. It's theater without a proscenium arts. It's like we want to do away with the frames. We want to have 
a direct experience. And right. that's what it's all about. Well, if I take that in a very simplistic way, Frank, and I drag it into my world of coaching, leadership development, leadership training, what people want is the one-to-one experience of telling you their story and getting perspective or advice or guidance on that story, how to develop that story, whether that's the story of what's happening at the moment or it's the story of their lives, or it's the story of their career. At the end of the day, that is what they want. And I am seeing that that is driving an explosion of coaching in my world as mm-hmm. a premium way, as an ideal way in people's minds for doing development. So we can have a long conversation about that. Let me drive you, drag you back to the purpose today, which is talk about stories. I, I realize that there's boatloads of research on this one, but I want your view. Why are stories so special? And by that, I know that they're memorable. I know that we find them intriguing. But why do you think? I think it's in addition to those things, um, it's because they appeal to us on emotional level. Uh, and on a personal level, these, these things are very intertwined. Um, uh, you know, the psychologist Jerome Bruner, who is one of the people who led to our our current focus on stories and storytelling, uh, he was a, a leader of the cognitive revolution, so-called, against behaviorism in the 1950s and 60s. And later in the 1980s, he took the what was at the time extremely unfashionable position that psychologists should be studying stories and storytelling. And he um, made the case that there are two, uh, two forms of, uh, of, of communication, basically, uh, two forms of knowledge. And, you know, one was what we've always been taught to admire and practice, which is logic and reasoning and so forth. Uh, but the other, which had always been ignored, not always, but for many, many decades had been ignored by psychologists, was stories and storytelling. And and, and he thought that these were two equally important uh, means of communication and, uh, and ways of thinking. And um, so it was really after that, that stories became a subject of, um, uh, of study. Right. And, right. So, uh, you know, the the thing about uh, stories is they appeal to the emotions. They appeal to us emotionally. They can have facts in them. I certainly am a great believer in facts, but uh, they appeal to us uh, on an emotional level. Right, right. Well, I believe about human beings, I'm going to make a statement, you can disagree with me or agree as you choose, um, that about human beings is we tell ourselves a story as a way of making sense of what we have experienced, seen, observed. And we know we don't see and experience everything. We just have our windows view. We tell ourselves a story from that. And then from that story, we abstract a logic and a reasoning. That the abstract and the logic is the outgrowth of the story we've told ourselves as opposed to the other way around. Now, what's your view? Do you agree or you disagree with me? I absolutely agree. Uh, No, I I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, again, this was for a long time a very unfashionable idea. Uh, You know, the truth is that uh, as humans, we find... um, you know, logic and reasoning to be largely an aspirational goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's something that we want to do and we feel we ought to do, 
but you know um all too often uh, it's something that we fail to accomplish and uh, you know that's entirely natural we are we are governed largely by emotions and and you know one of the reasons that i focus on stories is because i feel like we need to come to terms with this we need to understand it and uh you know there's not much point in trying to fight it frankly uh, but there is a lot of point in trying to learn how to tell better stories more effective stories and uh most importantly i think um stories that are true right well, that would be nice. <laughs> I'm going to go there in just a minute. Um, I want to emphasize something that you said for anybody who's listening and doubting that your logic and reasoning is an aspirational goal where you believe that you are logically and analytically and you're ignoring emotions. I just reference you to Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky's work. Um, Kahneman's book, my favorite is Think Fast, Think Slow, or Dan Ariely, or a host of other people who document the ways in which our thinking, our logic is biased, meaning it is not as logical and rational as we think it is. There's tons of research out there to back that one up. Okay, let me shift then. You said, you know, we need to understand stories. We need to understand how stories impact us. But there's all this stuff going on at the moment about news and fake news. And I don't want to go on politics and talk about which side of fake news you want to sit on. But I am intrigued by how quickly we believe a story that on its face validity is so full of holes that is unbelievable, okay? But yeah. once I get emotionally hooked, I'm going to believe it to be true. So tell me, you know, in your view, having studied this, what do you think is happening here? Uh, well, there's a couple of things that are going on. And, and you know, I, I, I mean, it's a very important thing, and especially it's a, a very important thing right now. Uh, when so many stories are being floated, um, you know, politically, economically, whatever, uh, that really just um, don't make a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, the thing is that most of us, uh, whatever persuasion we might happen to be, uh, we sort of unconsciously search for stories that are going to confirm our biases. You know, we, we want confirmation. And so... If we hear something that confirms what we already believe, uh, we're much more likely to pay attention to it and to and to give it uh, credence than if we hear something that you know that that counters it. And uh, you know this is this is true of all of us. And uh, it's it's the thing is that you know as this happens, you know as we're doing it. Uh, that's how it becomes easier to be, you know, led down the you know, garden path, so to speak, you know, to be, uh, you know, fed some story that is, you know, becomes increasingly apparent that it's not only untrue, but, but absurd. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we can, it's, it's just entirely too easy um, for us to, for us to fall into that trap. Um, there's been, a lot of research in, into this, and one of the most intriguing and, and I have to say somewhat discouraging things that was, uh, you know, most recently reported is that, uh, you know, even when 
people are presented with uh, facts that counter the stories they believe, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you yeah. know, they still believe them because that's what they want to believe. So what can you do? Yeah. Yeah. I used to have a hobby um, years ago of being able to spot what was an urban myth and what was reality. What was not an urban myth was a true story. Or, you know, there's all sorts of things that circle around and have for decades. And the same urban myth will kind of resurface every five years in a slightly different form, but it's got the same structure. It turns out that there is a structure to those untrue stories that when you're not paying attention to the emotion, you can spot. But the secret is to not get hooked by the emotion. And one of the things that marks them is they incite emotion almost immediately, alarm, like how could somebody allow this to happen to a child or, you know, some, you know, something that touches you. And then from there, you stop to see the logic of what's going. So that's a whole other topic for another day, Frank. <laughs> Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the very beginning of the book is you do a bit of a tour de force through how we uh, mentally and psychologically react to stories. Now, there's tons of research. I don't want to try to boil the ocean, but can you give us just a thumbnail view of understanding what it is? How do people actually react to stories? I found that completely fascinating myself, and, uh, and, and that's why I dug into it so much as I was writing the book. Um, the, uh, the general consensus among neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists, in other words, the people who study this stuff, um, seems to be that um, we understand stories by imaginatively projecting ourselves into them. And if you think about it, it makes total sense. Uh, you know, why else would we get scared in horror movies? You know, we know we're sitting there in our in our you know living room or in a theater where probably nothing is going to happen to us, and certainly the, there's not a guy with a chainsaw. But it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, we still get uh, we still get uh, scared, and that's the whole point. That's why we seek them out in the first place. And, uh, you know, so, so this realization, I think, is just critically important. It's, and there has been a lot of psychological research on it. Uh, the research is very interesting. I won't go into it now, but I, but I, I do, as you say, um, you know, explain some of it in the book. Um, but uh, it's almost as if we're running a simulation in our heads. Uh, you know, we know that, technically speaking, we know that it's not happening to us. It's not as if, you, you know, we, whatever ex emotion we're experiencing, it's not as if, you know, what caused this is actually happening to us. But uh, at the same time, um, it, it doesn't matter. Um, and that's because of this simulation, which I, you know, simulation is sort of a computer type term in, in, in these days anyway. And uh, so that's why I prefer to think of it as imaginatively projecting ourselves into the story, which is basically another way of saying uh, the same sort of thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's also why we tend to get immersed in stories, so, you know, whether it's a movie or, a, you know, a book that we're reading or, uh, you know, anything that... Uh, uh, anything like that, any form of story. It's, if if we can, if there are people in the story that we can identify with and we care about them for some reason, uh, then it's pretty easy to lose ourselves in that story. Right. Um, 
one of the fascinating pieces of research that I had not seen that you cited is this notion that an audience watching a movie together, if it's a well-constructed movie, their brains are actually in synchrony. Now, I did a bad job of explaining it. Can you do just a little <laughs> bit better job of that? Okay. Uh, so, yes, this was um, research that was begun in the, uh, I believe, in the late 1990s by Yuri Hassan, who at the time was um, at the Weizmann Institute of Science in, in uh, Tel Aviv and is now the head of, an, uh, uh, of a neuroscience lab at Princeton. And uh, his idea was to um, look at audiences as they were uh, watching the good, the bad, and the ugly, the 1960s spaghetti western. Uh, and... Um, and people in the field just thought this was ridiculous. You know, they practically laughed him out of out of the uh, out of the profession. Um, but what he, uh, you know, what he showed was that, uh, you know, as you say, people who were watching this um, this film, and this was done by neuroimaging (fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imagery), um, and people who were watching uh, the movie. Large portions of their of their brain were activated at the same time um, as things were, you know, as as the story was progressing uh, on screen in front of them. And um, by activated, I mean that there was blood flow to the brain, and that's what really indicates that this particular part of the brain is is doing the thinking. And uh, you know, at this point, we have a fairly general idea, in, in some cases, a pretty specific idea of what parts of the brain do what. And so uh, what Hassan was able to show was that, uh, you know, that, that this movie, which, you know, had, after all, been a very popular movie, um, affected a lot of people in pretty much the same way. He then went on later uh, to when he was at Princeton to compare that with a uh, show from Alfred Hitchcock Presents, the um, the, the half-hour series uh, from the early 1960s. And uh, this particular show was one that Hitchcock himself directed. And uh, so compare it with that, compare with um, Curb Your Enthusiasm, the, uh, you know, the HBO uh, comedy, which is a very unstructured comedy. And then to um, com to compare all of those with just totally unstructured footage from Washington Square Park in New York City. And he found that in the case of the um, uh, in in the case of the Hitchcock show, it was much more um, the case that people's brains uh, were activated in the same way at the same time. Uh, so, that gives you uh, some insight, I think, into why Hitchcock is such a good storyteller. <laughs> I need to know now, are my stories activating everybody's brain in synchrony? Um, so, but let me take that out of the just interesting academic point of view. I think it's fascinating and put it in a really practical point of view. If you buy the argument that as human beings, we've survived for tens of thousands of years, because of our ability to bond together as human societies. And you look at the storytelling, the belief that storytelling is a part of way of bonding us together as a community, meaning our community versus that other community over there. You certainly make sense that it would have evolved 
that our brains are activated simultaneously around a story because that becomes the bonding experience it creates this as a story. So, and if you read the book Homo sapiens, I think they'll make that argument as will others. I think from a leadership point of view, though, if you think about the power of this, the power of using a structured story, structured in the right way to activate people's brains in a similar manner, whether that's to inspire them, whether that's to drive them forward on a particular action, whether that's to bond together in a particular community or to drive a kind of change. If I can get a large part of the audience's brains aligned, thinking in that moment in a very similar manner, uh, somewhat, then that should be really effective. That should be more persuasive if I've chosen my story well and structured it well. And I'm not sure that there's a better argument for why we should be paying attention to stories. Okay. I agree. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Which brings us to the perfect break for the day, which is to say, we're going to take a break. And when we come back from that, I want to talk about, so what does that mean for you as a leader trying to get your organization? What do we need to be doing to tell stories? What kind of stories do we need to be telling? And what are the elements of stories that matter? So my guest today is Frank Rose. The book that we're talking about is The Sea We Swim In, How Stories Work in a Data-Driven World. Um, Frank teaches at Columbia Business School a, a seminar called Strategic Storytelling, as well as writing for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, 
back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Frank Rose. The book we're talking about is The Sea We Swim In, How Stories Work in a Data-Driven World. The premise here, the starting premise, is that as human beings, we have a very special affinity for stories. I'm going to tell you we have the ability to remember stories better than we remember anything else. And as you just heard in that very last segment, segment, the research is showing that stories, when they are well-structured, actually activate humans' brains in a similar manner. So it looks like there is some loose synchrony with how our brains are firing. I think that's a long stretch between we say we're thinking the same way, but parts of our brain are activated in the same ways, I guess is the appropriate interpretation. All right. Apart from the fascinating research around why stories matter and what they do to us, I want to turn now to talk about organizational life. And Frank, my first question for you is, why do you believe organizations need to tell stories, particularly stories around strategy? Well, that's a really good question. And as you were saying uh, just before the break, we, uh, uh, you you know, organizations need stories to, um, you know, keep everything together, to keep people uh, on the same page, so to speak, to keep them moving in the same direction. And uh, uh, Yuval uh, Noah Harari, in his book Homo Sapiens and his subsequent book Homo Deus, uh, you know, really uh, describes this and describes how it works. And, you know, to him, and I think he has a very good point, uh, just about everything is a story. Nations are stories. Money is a story. Religion is obviously a story. Uh, And um, uh, so these are stories that we're told from childhood. Uh, and that we grow up believing, uh, you know, they're, they're become um, part of our identity. And if you look at, you know, what happens, uh, uh, for example, in, in, in case of war, uh, you know, how people bond together um, more or less spontaneously to fight, it is uh, quite extraordinary. We see it happening now in Ukraine. We saw it in World War II. Uh, we see it time and again. And uh, it is very, very powerful. Uh, now, as a, as a leader, I think that, uh, you know, one of your main uh, functions, one of the main things that you have to do is to keep everybody together and to keep everybody, you know, moving, uh, you know, moving together in the same direction at the same time. And uh, uh, it's called coordination, I guess. <laughs> but, but stories are... Uh, you know, a, an incredible motivating factor. I've spent a lot of time talking with marketing people at big corporations who, you know, uh, uh, talk about the, you know, the, the videos that they've made, advertisements, whatever. And some of them are very, very effective. But often they're, they're aimed just as much at employees as they are at the public. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so this can be a very, very effective tool, I think. Yeah. Okay, um, and you made a big case about strategic stories. Right. Can you say more about that? Sure. Well, the program I teach at Columbia, it's a, an executive education program, as you said. It's really aimed at, you know, mid-career and senior-level executives at all kinds of organizations, uh, you know, big companies, small companies, nonprofits. We get lots of people from consultancies like McKinsey and uh, PwC and so forth, uh, and the 
the the point of strategic storytelling is how do you tell stories that are you know that are strategic that, that is to say that uh, are going to advance your long-term goals uh, you know, as an individual leader, as an organization, um, you know, whatever you're faced with at the, at the current moment. And, uh, and that's a very important uh, uh, consideration, I think. We have tactical stories, too, but uh, strategic stories are the ones that they're the ones that are sort of evergreen that we can fall back on, uh, you know, at any point, especially when things are going wrong. And, you know, if these strategic stories ring true, you know, if they seem to be true, if they strike a chord with, um, with the audience, then you're going to be uh, much safer, shall we say, uh, than if they don't. Right. Or if you don't have them in the first place. I have long, longed, decades, believed that if we look at the stories that are told within the organization, not by the senior leaders, but by people within the organization, that you could diagnose the culture based on the stories. Because the stories tend to persist, even if everybody involved in the story has long since left. It's still a bit of the mythology of how we do things around here. And I also believe that if you could change the stories that are told, you would change the culture, meaning you would change how we work. I think that's how powerful they are. So if you mm-hmm. think about this as a moving in a strategic direction and giving people a story that rings true, that is believable, that fits, that people identify with, which means it has to be well-structured, then, <laughs> and told by the right person, by the way, then I think you've got a possibility of that story being retold and retold and retold and people falling back on it as an explanation for why we're doing what we're doing. I think it's a secret ingredient that's being missed at the moment. That's how much I believe this is so important. Okay, so now you have a ton to say about how, and I'm going to ask you a very unfair question, Frank, how How do I begin as a leader to think about the story, about creating the story and telling the story in a way that's going to make a difference? Well, uh, yes, that's a very important question. And I'd say that, you know, one of the most basic things is to understand the idea of the narrative arc. Uh, In my uh, Columbia program, I've identified what I consider to be, uh, you know, nine essential elements of stories. And the first three are the ones that are the most critical of all. And that's the author, the audience, and the journey. As an author, you are taking your audience on a journey. They start in one place, uh, and hopefully they end up somewhere else, Uh, uh, certainly in terms of time, but also in terms of frame of mind. That's the whole point. Um, So uh, what that means is that uh, you need to understand each of these three elements. You need to understand who you are as the author, why you're telling the story, what you want to accomplish, all of that sort of thing. But you also need to understand your audience. You know, too many people just go out and say what they want to say, and they figure that'll be enough. It's not enough. Uh, you need to um, understand what's going to motivate your audience, how you can reach them, what they care about. Uh, why they're going to care about your story, if they're going to care about it at all. Uh, And then the journey, you have to structure the journey for them. 
you know, the, the as I say, your story has to begin in one place and end in another. And by place, what I really mean is time, because stories are really time-based. That's one thing that too many people, especially in business, I find, fail to understand. And that's how they get confused, uh, you know, if you will, between stories and facts. And, you know, like a set of facts is not a story. Um, a PowerPoint is not a story. And a PowerPoint is never going to motivate anybody. Uh, so, um, but, but a story is something that happens to uh, either an individual or a group of people or a group of animals or robots or whatever. It doesn't matter as long as they're humans or humanoids. Uh, and something has to happen to them to, to make us care. They have to be um, threatened in some way or they have to go out on a quest that's going to challenge them, uh, you know, anything like that. Uh, and they have to... Um, uh, you know, they, in order to make this work, they have to face some kind of danger or some kind of, um, you know, threat, because that's what makes us care about them. Otherwise, you know, why would we care, you know? Um, and so that's, you know, that's really critical. Uh, I can go into the other six uh, um, elements. Some of them, I think, are are more important than others. I think that um, what's most interesting to me is that some of them are um, are the same whatever technology we're using, and some of them have been changed because of digital technology and the change in terms of the way we work, the way they work, I should say. Well, presumably technology has changed the way we tell the journey, the way we unfold the journey, but the author is still the author, whether they're presented face-to-face in a traditional way or whether they're presented in a digital way. Am I right about that assumption? Uh, not entirely, I don't think. Um, you know, I uh, that was a kind of question that I explored uh, a great deal in my previous book, The Art of Immersion. And one of the best examples I can, I can give you is the uh, um, interviews that I had with um, the people, the showrunners for Lost. Um, and they were... Uh, um, you know, people who were uh, well known to the fans of the show, uh, Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse, and uh, they went to things like Comic-Con in San Diego. Uh, they interacted with fans a lot. And uh, they told me that uh, basically fans came to them with two different questions which were uh, on, the, on the face of it sort of mutually contradictory. And, you know, one of the questions was, um, do you know where this story is going? Because they wanted to be sure, they wanted to be reassured that the storyteller uh, knew what they were talking about, you know, and knew where the story was going to go and what the point was and, you know, how it was going to end and all of that sort of thing. Uh, and... But the other question that they uh, got all the time was, can we have a say in the story? Can we have a say in where the story goes? And that's, there's actually a long tradition of this. And digital technology makes a, you know, communication pretty uh, instant. But the same thing happened with Charles Dickens in the 19th century because his novels were all published, um, not initially as books, but as um, in serial form. 
And what that meant, uh, you know, they would come out like a few chapters at a time, a month apart. And what that meant was that people had time to, uh, you know, read them and write back to them and give, the, give them their ideas of where the story would go. So just like the fans of Lost in the 21st century, you know, the fans of, of, um, of, of say, Martin Chuzzlewick or, or the old Curiosity Shop had their own ideas for where Dickens should take his stories. And sometimes he listened to them and sometimes he didn't. Uh, when he listened to them, it was usually because he felt the story wasn't going so well and he needed some ideas. <laughs> but uh, but when, when, when he really knew where the story was going, he would take right, it there. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. That, is, that is co-creation. I love that. There's exactly. also diversions of this one. All right. So audience, which is who am I? What am I trying to say? Why are people listening to me? What's my point of view? Why am I telling the story? There's, that's more author. I just, I that's your author. Excuse me. Right. I said that incorrectly. And then the audience, which is who am I talking to? What do they care about? What are they motivated by? And then there is the journey. How is it that I'm taking people from a beginning point to an ending point that unfolds in some perspective of time? Okay. And granted, we tell stories that fold on themselves, but still the events of the story sort of happen over time, if you will. Okay, when we work with uh, leaders on communication and uh, trying to get the story about themselves as a leader, for example, their brand story, if you will, told in a compelling manner, we find that it takes a boatload of work to get people to understand who are they, what's the story they're trying to tell, and what's the purpose they're trying to tell. Do you find the same in working with your executives at Columbia? Uh, yes, I, I do. And I think it's, you know, it's not too surprising. It's one of the hardest, um, you know, questions to to really answer. We tend to, you know, we tend to kind of function on automatic pilot a lot. And we, and we uh, you know, we have some sense of what we want to say and, uh, and, and we just go ahead and say it. But if you really are going to think through this strategically, um, you need to, uh, you know, you need to have a thorough understanding of your own motivations and certainly your own goals. Uh, and you have to have, you know, thought through how to get there. Uh, and that involves, of course, not just um, your own identity, um, but, uh, but the audiences as well, because you're going to tell a story differently, let's face it, from, you know, from one audience to the next. If these audiences have, you know, different biases, different points of view, different life experiences, that sort of thing. Right. Okay. All right. Fair enough. We certainly see that in that you change, I, or I see that, that you change not the essence of the story, but you same some of the structure of the story, depending upon the audience, depending upon their world, their, what they're going through and so on. All right. What's the biggest mistakes you see leaders make when they step out to tell a story? Uh, that's a good question. I think the, um, I think the biggest mistake uh, is is also the most basic, which is to not fully understand what a story is, to not fully understand, uh, you know, how it depends on emotions uh, uh, more than facts, um, how it uh, is, uh, how it's dramatically structured, how it has to be dramatically structured. I mentioned the narrative arc. That's not the only structure for a story, certainly, but 
it's um, it's certainly one of the most effective and uh, you know very time honored. Uh, Aristotle wrote about it thousands of years ago, and uh, so so this is a you know this is this is something that is really critical to understand. The story is not just a you know a dry recitation of facts. Um, it's not, as I said, a PowerPoint. Uh, it's nothing that can be conveyed on a PowerPoint. It it, it is going to have to involve emotional um, uh, investment, both uh, on, from yourself as a storyteller and, uh, you know, in, on the part of the audience, because if the audience does not become emotionally involved in it, they're not going to care and your story is going to fall flat. Okay. All right. Now, TED Talks are <laughs> the most modern version of stories that we see. Do are they good ones or are they mediocre ones? Well, there's a range, of course, but uh, I think the good ones are very, very good. And uh, uh, you know, the TED talks are a little different from um, many kinds of stories because um, they are um, they're structured to get across an idea uh, for the most part. And so you can have, uh, you can, uh, can, and, uh, you know, I think you are encouraged to, uh, you know, bring something personal to it to sort of relate a personal yeah. experience as a way of illustrating it and so forth. Um, but it's not like uh, you're going to be watching a, um, uh, say, an advertisement or, for that matter, a movie. And when I say advertisement, I'm referring to the fact that more and more ads these days are essentially stories. And certainly that's, you know, I think the most effective form of advertising, especially right now, when there is a wealth of information available at your fingertips, all you have to do is, you know, type a few, you know, words in and you get, a, a, you know, millions of, of answers. Uh, so, um, uh, and also nobody wants to be interrupted, you know, whether they're watching TV or whether they're reading something online or watching something online. Uh, you know, interruptive uh, advertising persists, but it's, uh, you know, I, I yeah, frankly, I can't believe it. Uh, so, you know, that's what's, I think, important to, um, to, to recognize. Okay. All right. I would agree with that one. So even, so where I'm getting at this is I think we have very few examples of seeing people use story effectively in organizational life to, for a strategic purpose. And the closest we get to that is TED Talks. But you're right, TED Talks are structured, at least today they're structured in my understanding around, I have a concept to get across to you and I'm going to use a story to convey a piece of that concept. But it's the concept, not just the story that I'm telling. Okay? Right. right. All right. Now, you said a very important one, that the audience has to get emotionally involved. If they're not emotionally involved, it's not effective. And I think that's uh, a scary thought for an awful lot of organizations. So can you say more about how to get an audience emotionally involved? Well, you know, one of the examples I, um, I, I use in the uh, book is uh, what happened at Burberry, uh, the um, British fashion um, company, in the uh, early 2000s, um, roughly from about uh, 2000 to 2010 or 12. Uh, and this was largely the result of uh, a man named Christopher Bailey, who was the um, uh, design director at the start. And um, 
ultimately became a creative director and then CEO as well. Um, and uh, he, before he became CEO, he worked with a couple of, um, you know, very, very effective CEOs and they worked very well together. And the result was outstanding business growth. At the turn of the, uh, of the century, at the end of the 1990s, uh, Burberry was frankly in the toilet. Uh, and it was a 150-odd-year-old uh, British um, uh, brand, uh, heritage brand, as they call it. But, um, uh, you know, nobody bought it. And, uh, you know, another uh, similar brand, Aquascutum, was sold around the same time for, uh, you know, to a Chinese company for, uh, you know, a pittance. And... Uh, Bailey and the CEOs he worked with, most notably uh, Angela, um, uh, and and the the thing that they uh, did, the thing that they worked together on, was they told the story of a of a heritage brand. Uh, they told it through not just advertisements, um, not just fashion shows, although that was certainly a part of it, but through music. There was always an emphasis on on music and on uh, on workmanship. Uh, you know, it was a luxury brand. Their stuff was very expensive, uh, and so often when you see brands like that, you get the sense that they're expensive because they're expensive. You know, in other words, there's not a whole lot behind it except you know we're going to charge you a lot of money, right. and therefore you'll you'll be impressed. Um, you know, Bailey. Uh, uh, was speaking to a new generation, and he was speaking to them um, digitally, uh, you know, through the website at a time when luxury fashion brands, every other luxury fashion brand, disdained the internet. You know, they thought our customers are too special. And so he was able to effectively tell the story of Burberry, uh, to interpret the story of Burberry, uh, to make this, uh, you know, 150-year-old heritage brand relevant and uh, and to make people care about it. Uh, and it was very, very successful. Ultimately, what happened was when he became CEO as well, two very, very different jobs, and he was not able to um, handle them both, especially because, uh, you know, investors were had gotten used to this idea that the lines with you know the uh, charts would keep going up in terms of the uh, amount of yeah. uh, income and profit they were making uh when that didn't happen he was out uh, yeah. unfortunately yeah. but he was a very very effective storytelling and yeah, i think you yeah. can do a lot worse than to study uh everything that he did he did all right well, Frank, we're out of time, but it strikes me that for all the companies out there, all the leaders out there that are focusing on purpose and a sense of purpose for your organization, that it's a, it's a moment to stop and say, what are the stories I'm telling? Stories I'm telling, not facts, not data points. The story I'm telling about who we are, why we're here, why this matters, um, and who's the audience that I'm telling it to. I just think there's a simple moment in time that it, if it ever called for a story, this is one of them to call for a story. Frank, one minute. My favorite last question. What takes you out of your comfort zone and what's your secret to success? <laughs> uh, well, I'm not sure they're entirely the same, but, uh, but uh, you know, as you know, I spent many years as a journalist and 
what I always loved more than anything else, I was a magazine journalist. That meant I got, you know, I had the luxury of spending some time to, you know, research and write a story. So if I were flying into some place that I'd never been before to uh, to try to understand what was going on and interview everybody I could find, even if they didn't want to talk to me, that was always the thing that was most exciting to me. And that's, uh, you know, I think that's what it's all about. Whatever your, you know, field that you're in, um, if you can bring that that feeling of, uh, uh, of you know, energy that comes with discovering something new, um, you know, it's, I don't know that that's a secret to whatever success I've had, but it's certainly the secret to the enjoyment I've gotten out of it. Perfect. Frank, excellent answer and a great way to close it with a story in and of itself. My guest today is Frank Rose. The book we've been talking about is The Sea We Swim In, How Stories Work in a Data-Driven World. Frank, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I think the thing that I take out of this is once again, the reminder of how powerful stories are and how ubiquitous they are in our ability as organizations to get aligned and move in a common direction and how much we need to understand the story arc, the narrative arc, the journey, our role as the author and the role of the audience, just to name a couple of it. So Frank, thank you for being a guest. Thank you, Melinda. It's great to be here. Right, and join us next week for another episode in getting out of our com- out of your comfort zone. If you like what you've heard today and want to know more about how to apply these concepts and others, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 